Platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and this month, February 2021, we take a deep dive into the topic of the five domains model on pause. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Rebecca Ledger, who's a clinical animal behaviorist, also an animal behavior and welfare scientist, trained as an ABTC registered clinical animal behaviorist and has become an international court expert witness in animal behavior, welfare, cruelty, and suffering. Welcome, Rebecca. Hi, Sabrina, lovely to be here. Delighted to have you on a very, very important topic. And before we go into the specifics of your job, could you give us a short introduction to yourself, please? Of course. Um, so uh, as you as you said, I'm a, an animal behavior and welfare scientist. Um, I've, uh, gosh, I feel like I've been in this a long time now, this business. Uh, I did an undergrad in biology at Royal Holloway, um, uh, part of London University in the late 80s, early 90s. And when I graduated, uh, <laughs> I really wanted to work with animals. Um, and I wanted to do something welfare oriented. And you know, it was a, I was told, well, either you have to go to vet school, you're a vet nurse, or you work in a zoo. Um, and I, I don't know, none of those were really appealing to me. But then I found out about this wonderful course. Um, it was brand new at Edinburgh University. And it was established by uh, Professor David Woodgush. And it was Applied Animal Behaviour and Animal Welfare. And I applied late, <laughs> unbelievably. And I, uh, I got offered a place anniversary and um, it was uh, that was that was it that I knew I was on the right path. So I did the masters and, and it opened um, up a, a lot of doors and gave me a lot of opportunities to do other things uh, related to animal uh, welfare specifically, um, but utilizing a, a science background. So I ended up working, uh, spending some time working uh, for the Waltham Center of Pet Nutrition, uh, studying um, cat behavior and personality development in cats and how diet would influence that. I, um, I did a PhD with uh, Mike Baxter at Brunel University where uh, that was funded by the RSPCA. And I was uh, focused on understanding personality traits in dogs and specifically, was it possible to measure those or assess those personality traits in dogs when they were in shelters? Um, and what did those traits tell us about how dogs would behave in their new homes? So that was uh, that was a really exciting project. It was wonderful time spent there. And then um, I got a grant from Friskies. Um, I was a Friskies fellow, which I think is a very exciting job title. And uh, I was, um, again, working with the RSPCA. Uh, and we were looking at how, uh, once we understood personality traits in dogs in shelters, was there, uh, was there any um, benefit to 
placing those certain types of dogs in certain types of homes, um, whereby we could reduce return rates of those dogs. Um, but uh, then I also got really interested in uh, psychopharmacology as well. Uh, the, I, I realized that the, the scientific study of animal behavior is very fascinating to me, but I've always felt a lot more practical and hands-on. And so I started to um, study also to become uh, a registered clinical animal behaviorist as well. And uh, one of the really helpful things that I did in my early career was to work with Daniel Mills. At, uh, um, at, he's now at Lincoln University, um, where we were looking at the benefits of um, using certain uh, medications to help dogs with certain personality traits to become more trainable. Uh, so that was that was very helpful. Soon after that, I moved to Canada. That was in 2002. And I was uh, a visiting scholar at the University of British Columbia's Animal Welfare Program. Uh, I spent about two and a half years there, but I was working um, also with the BCSPCA. So that's the British Columbia Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. We have um, uh, various provinces across Canada and each province has its own SPCA. Um, and the BCSPCA was already you know, established as being a, a very progressive and science-based organization. So um, I got to do, again, lots of practical things with them, sort of really bringing the science into the shelters to enhance the welfare of the animals that we were taking care of. And uh, following that, um, after three kids, <laughs> I kind of went out on my own, became a consultant um, and found that, you know, because there were very few people with um, a scientific background in animal behavior and animal welfare in Canada. Um, there weren't I don't, very sort of few people graduating with master's degrees um, back then um, in this field. So I, I found um, I found a niche. I found there were opportunities in all sorts of other fields to um, to to help people enhance the the well being of animals by bringing science to them. So I was working with and still do work with um, municipalities, with um, with governments, uh, the police, I've worked with the military, pet food companies, um, uh, governing bodies who are responsible for overseeing the care of animals used in um, laboratory testing, um, animal control, private individuals, but and, and also the courts. And so probably about 75% of the, the work I do currently is for the courts. Wonderful. That's a very, very rich uh, background and lots of experience. And of course, what we very much like to hear on the Practical Animal Welfare Science Platform is what you highlighted several times already, taking science, you know, taking that into various areas and seeing how can that help us, you know, improve the care for the animals, the well-being of the animals. And uh, yeah, Frisky's title, that's a, that's a great title. <laughs> A good one, eh? <laughs> um, and so, and one of the things, of course, that you also do, apart from having a thriving consultancy company uh, now, you have been a columnist, you've been writing. Can you talk to us a little bit uh, about that? Yes, I, I was very fortunate. I did that for five years with the uh, the Vancouver Sun. So the Vancouver Sun is a, a provincial newspaper in BC, um, but it's owned by uh, a lot, much larger company called Post Media, who own, oh gosh, I don't even know, probably at least 15 newspapers across Canada, including some national ones, um, like the National Post. And so uh, I had the opportunity to 
you know, we, it was going to be a six week trial just to write some what we refer to as fluffy animal articles for the general public. And uh, um, and it really they really were wonderful. They allowed me to get um, to start writing a really about anything I thought was really important and topical to do with animals. So it started off with things like, you know, the best way to train your dog. Uh, but I was able to expand into areas like um, the, the export of live horses for slaughter overseas, for example. Um, I, they, the Sun sometimes asked me to tone it down and suggested that, you know, this wasn't the kind of thing a lot of people wanted to read over their croissants and orange juice on a Saturday morning. But um, but nevertheless, you know, it, it was an amazing opportunity to uh, to bring a lot of the the science to the general public, animal welfare science to people who really are interested in this, but wouldn't typically pick up a journal or um, uh, a, you know, a professional um, magazine in order to understand some of these issues. So I, I did that and I was very fortunate because even though I was really just working for the Vancouver Sun, the articles were reprinted across Canada. Um, and you know, you know you're having an, an impact when you start to hear people that you don't even know start to talk about your, what they've they, they've uh, they've read that I've written um, and and hearing how you know your writing gets to influence people's thoughts and ideas and opinions about animals in that broad societal context was was really amazing and and I stopped doing it um, a couple of years ago just purely because I was swamped I I was just not able to um, maintain churning out the articles at the same time as uh, the court work was really picking up so but I, I'll, I'll get back to it again another time <laughs> yes that's absolutely wonderful because it's so important to like you say uh, not everybody you know has necessarily studied um, a particular science or has access to these articles which are sometimes often are you have to pay for them or we don't necessarily know how to read them or even if we read them how to then take that and say okay so how could I use that so it sounds like wonderful that you were able to build lots of bridges between you know the scientific um, outcomes and findings to how can this be you know useful with your cat at home or with your dog training and you know and how can this help us also in uh, being a voice for animals whether it's in life exports or others so that's really wonderful I think it's it's so important uh, that we that we go um, you know, through these exercises. And, and it's not for everybody, but uh, I'm glad to hear you're doing uh, some of that. And, and you have published, uh, of course, a lot of different things. Can you uh, talk to us a little bit about your academic work and publications a little more? Um, yeah, expand on what you talked uh, in your intro, please. Yeah, absolutely. Well, say I moved out of academia formally, oh gosh, well over a decade ago. So um, in terms of publications and journals the, the my, my I guess I peaked in uh, in the in the 90s and the early 2000s but um, but since then um, I, the thing I enjoy doing most is is actually talking to scientific audiences I, I love talking I love teaching and and it just fits with my personality better to be up on a stage or speaking into a microphone and talking about what I do than, than publishing in journals. Um, however, I, 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 I've actually been encouraged to write up more of what we have been doing in the courts in, in a journal format because, you know, it, it, it is the only way that many people are able to 
access um, what we've been doing and utilize it in, in their own way. So, uh, and it does of course legitimize what we're doing when we're applying existing research into a new context that in itself is, is publishable. And so we, um, yeah, I've got a few more articles on the go right now that um, I'm working on with my, my colleagues in New Zealand at Mass University to, um, so that we can, yeah, absolutely, you know, publish um, the application of, of so many wonderful studies that are already out there. Um, but my, my studies personally, uh, they've generally focused on companion animals, um, uh, some cat work, but primarily dogs. And that's how I really got into initially working for the courts and, um, and bringing science to them. It, it was because of my background with with dogs that, that that was the expertise that was initially uh, required of me. But it's the principles of how we're applying that knowledge um, into the courtroom that um, I've now been asked to apply those same principles to other species as well. So I feel like I'm becoming not just such a, a dog focused person or a cat focused person, but someone actually now who's more focused on how to apply the five domains model regardless of the species into circumstances that um, involve animal suffering. Wonderful, um, and I think, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and, and that's the really sort of where, the, that's where my, the, the current papers I've, I've got on the boil, that's their focus right now. It's, in, it's that more generic application as opposed to species specific work currently. Yes, and I think it's so important what you mentioned about legitimizing and, and you know, often people, you know, they're like, well, you know, unless we have data or we have proof uh, evidence. Uh, and of course, you know, writing that up, I think it's really interesting and very important. Um, so I'm glad those are boiling, as you say. And, and actually, we have uh, Associate Professor Nagaya Beausoleil uh, joining us tonight. Um, oh, brilliant. Yes, yeah. she's wonderful. Yes, I know a lot to Nayo. <laughs> Yes. So she's joining us tonight on the pause platform to speak about the newest, uh, the, the new updates into from 2020 uh, on the five domains model. So yeah, it's all about the five domains this month. And, I'm, and we're so glad to have you on this podcast, because you're doing very important work. You've mentioned already several times about you um, working as an animal expert in, in court. So could you speak a little bit to people, how, how do you even get into that role and, and what do you do? What are some of the things that, that are asked of you? Yeah, it, it was, um, my, my first legal cases were in the UK and it was never a, uh, and so this was in the, sort of the late nineties up to 2002. And I never advertised myself as, a, um, as someone who wanted to provide an expert opinion in court cases. Uh, regarding animals. Um, it's something I think like with most people, you kind of, you know, you get asked once or twice and you end up, you know, becoming someone that gets called on again if you're any good. And so the first case I did, it was, um, I remember I was working, I was, I was actually doing a postdoc with the RSPCA um, and I was working, I was collecting data at a shelter um, in Millbrook, in Chobham, in Surrey. Um, and one of the volunteers there had a situation where her dog had been um, accused of biting another person or another dog. I, I can't remember the details. It was actually almost 30 years ago, but um, she 
she was very um she was very upset she was a dog trainer she was very upset that she felt that her dog didn't um didn't deserve this this designation and so she asked me to write a letter um uh, to the court oh, actually on behalf of her lawyer that could be used in court to uh, to contest this designation that her dog was given uh, and that was the first case i did and it was the there was no rule book there was no textbook on how to do this so I had to think okay well what do I know about dogs what does the science tell us about dogs what do we know about assessing dogs and what that says about their overall personality so that was the first time I I, I really was just asked to apply what I studied as part of my PhD into this very specific case and um, and then once you've kind of done one and then there was another one again just all through word of mouth I got involved then you can uh, in the UK at the time you could apply to be something on the register of expert witnesses and it's like a thick book that um, many lawyers will have in their legal offices and if they need an expert on any particular subject area they can go to that subject area indexed in the book and they can see you know who's available who which um, who's offering them their services in the court context in order to be uh, that we can utilize uh, in order to give an opinion in our case and so once I'd um, gotten into that book then I started to get a few more cases but I moved to Canada very soon after that so you know things were I was starting to get a bit busy with that in like 2002 but then I moved to Canada um, and I stopped doing it I didn't do any legal cases for many years um, but then I was working for the BCSPCA and I was the acting general manager of animal behavior and animal welfare. And we got called up one day by a lawyer who um, was working. She was a city lawyer. So she was um, uh, effectively a, a prosecutor. And these city prosecutors will uh, prosecute owners of dogs that have bitten and caused serious injury. And um, and of course, the, the owner, the defense is allowed to present a defense in court if they disagree with that designation. And so when these things go to court, both sides need their own experts. So I wasn't in any book in Canada. There was no <laughs> book that I was aware of that listed me as an expert. But the, the lawyer, the prosecutor thought to reach out to the BCSPCA and find out, you know, do you have anyone who knows about dogs and can assess dogs? And um, and so I that was a that was my first case here. I think that was in about 2006, maybe. So I probably went about sort of four years without having done a case. Um, and it was pretty terrifying because it's a very different court system here. And in the UK, um, I'd submitted reports, expert reports, but I'd never actually appeared in court. So here in, um, in Canada, it was actually, that was the first time I was inside a courtroom and I was being cross-examined and uh, it, it was, it was very traumatic <laughs> to be honest, you know, I, I know that, um, you know, in science where I, I wouldn't say it's not adversarial, but it's not nothing like being in a courtroom and being on a stand and having a, um, an opposing counsel try to first of all discredit you <laughs> in front of the court to um, hopefully uh, diminish any weight that the court would put on my opinion should I give one and then they're there just to kind of pull apart and find every reason every flaw that um, that I use to build my opinion so that again my, my opinion is discredited uh, it's a very tough thing um, a very tough process 
um, and I didn't enjoy the first ones. But then um, when I left the SPCA and I started to do consultancy, I was approached by uh, an absolutely brilliant um, animal law um, uh, animal lawyer here in Vancouver called Rebecca Breda. Um, and she started to retain me to work on, um, on cases involving dangerous dogs here. And she was, she's not just a genius and a, and a passionate um, person when it comes to animals, but she also mentored me. She also really helped me understand the court process and how to, um, how to feel confident in my opinion uh, and, uh, and how to talk to the courts in a way that was useful to them. And so I, I think that's what really helped me um, start to really enjoy the court process. It was by having that amazing mentor who, who guided me through that process here in, in the early days. And um, Rebecca's, Rebecca Breders subsequently um, retained me on many of her cases, but interestingly, I've also been retained by the opposing counsel on many cases as well. Um, so, you know, um, we're, we're sometimes on opposing sides, but um, so that's how it started. It, it started really in Canada with these dangerous dog cases. But then there was a case with uh, when I was working again, I was I'd already left the SPCA, but a, an, another amazing person who is um, just uh, just phenomenal is uh, is a lady called Eileen Drever. And Eileen was one of the senior animal protection officers for the BC SPCA, which meant that she was uh, in charge of um, overseeing animal cruelty investigations um, in the lower mainland here in, 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 Bank, uh, in BC. And, and Eileen approached me once because she had a, uh, a case involving animal suffering where, whereby, a, um, gosh, in fact, there were two cases. They kind of happened about the same time. But the first one involved a dog called Sade. Uh, she was a Doberman. Um, her owner or her caregiver at the time had been um, filmed on CCTV uh, camera inside an elevator, inside a, um, a hotel, um, uh, yanking the dog on its leash and appearing to yell at it and um, treating the dog in a way that uh, we would anticipate would cause that dog to, um, to feel, feel very fearful. And you could tell by the demeanor of the dog in this video that the dog was very fearful. So the SPCA, uh, the video was leaked to the media. The SPCA went and visited the dog and, um, and she had, I, I don't think there was any physical evidence to speak of that to suggest that she had been abused in any way, um, which was very disappointing for the BC SPCA because you know, the, the public's visceral reaction to seeing this video as well as um, uh, anyone who works with animals, they, you know, you could tell that this dog was suffering. And so Eileen said, look, we've never done this before. Do you think that you could uh, prepare a report and come to court and, um, and explain to the court that this dog is suffering, even though there is no physical evidence of an injury? Um, and I said, well, for, for sure, I can, you know, I can write up what we know. And, um, and I wrote the report and it was accepted by the court and I, they didn't even want to cross-examine me on it. So um, there was that plus other evidence, but uh, the, the, um, the person who was uh, uh, hurting the dog in the elevator, he pled guilty to, uh, to causing an animal to suffer unnecessarily. 
Um, and that was, we understand it, the first case in Canada in about, when was that, 2014, I think, whereby um, we, if somebody was found guilty of causing an animal to suffer unnecessarily under the, I think it was the, uh, the criminal code as well, um, without any physical evidence being available. So that was, um, that, that was quite monumental. And there was another case um, parallel with that involving uh, another gentleman who was witnessed um, uh, physically hurting his German Shepherd dog. Um, uh, and again, when the dog was seized, there was no physical evidence, but we, um, the dog was seized and the owner appealed that seizure through something called the Farm Industry Review Board, which is an appeal process that allows for an appeal process that owners can utilize to get their animals back if they feel that they've been seized unjustifiably by the SPCA. And, and the, um, the FERB board, they, they upheld the BCSPCA's opinion that, yeah, this, this dog was suffering. There may not have been physical evidence of injury, but the dog did suffer nonetheless. And that was based on um, the condition that the dog was experiencing. So what it was, what was happening to it plus the behavioral response of that dog. And also to some degree, the physiological response as well. We could see some things like pupil dilation and, and panting as well. So when we put all these things together, we were able to infer how the animal was feeling. And by effectively expanding how the term suffering was defined within the existing legislation, this was again, one of the very first cases where we were able to um, expand that that definition to include feelings and sensations, not just um, signs of physical injury. Uh, so that's that's how I got into it. And then, of course, it, it kind of opened the floodgates because there are many instances where animals are um, uh, subjected to conditions that cause them to to suffer um, psychologically. And of course, all suffering is psychological. But what I mean by that is, you know, not suffering from physical injury, but um, but suffering in ways where there may not be signs of physical harm, but purely that the animal is experiencing negative feelings, emotions, um, sensations that are intense and qualified to be considered suffering. Um, so that's how it all started. I apologize. That was quite long winded, but it, it's quite a, quite a fun story. <laughs> Yes, I think it's very important to get that background and also the evolution of it. Like you, you know, it's uh, even though it's not that many years ago, it's still, you know, the first cases of where it's going beyond physical suffering, but really including the affective states of animals. And, uh, and of course, very difficult, I'm sure, also uh, to deal with. But uh, this is also a very good segue into, and this is how I came across your work, uh, which is the paper you wrote um, with uh, Professor Miller on the uh, forensic use of the five domains model for assessing suffering in cases of animal cruelty. And so perhaps you could uh, talk a little bit to that, like how, um, you know, this paper came to be and, uh, and how you have been using it in your work in court cases. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so um, I was already using the five domains model to um, as a framework to help the courts to understand um, how we are able to assess suffering in animals in these ca in cases of, um, of cruelty and neglect. 
Um, and I was very fortunate that I was able to meet David at a conference here in Canada in, gosh, I think about 2016. Uh, and David was giving a, a talk on the five domains model at the National Animal Welfare Conference and in Canada. And I, I was so thrilled he was there and I rushed up to him and I said, hi, my name's Rebecca. I've been using the five domains model in court cases. And it's brilliant. And his jaw dropped and we kind of scurried off. Um, he sadly had to leave the conference early and he wasn't going to be able to stay there for my uh, for my talk. But I went through the talk with him and he was just so thrilled to see that the, the model was being um, that, that it had it was being used in this way, that this application was so helpful to the courts uh, as, a, as a way to communicate how um, how we assess suffering in animals, and um, so uh, so I'd show I showed him quite a few of the cases that um, I'd already done, and we stayed in touch as more cases came through, and um, and I accomplished more. and And he said, you know, you we need to write this up. We need to um, we we need to publish this so other people know what you're doing. And it, to some degree, you know, it does also legitimize this process in future court cases that I do. So, uh, so together we we put together um, the paper that you're referring to, and uh, it's it, it has been really helpful. It, it it's it's brought what we're doing to a wider audience. So I, I'd say that every animal lawyer in Canada knows me, and I speak at a lot of um, prosecutor conferences and. Um, uh, cruelty conferences here in North America, but uh, and actually last year I, I did speak at the um, Animal Behavior Society conference on on what we were doing as well. So, but this, you know, the paper it is important because it's um, you know although I pride myself now being a very practical person, um, having that that credibility that the the a published report of what we're doing brings is has been really it's important. Um, and so really that, that, that first paper, it was a summary of the, of work of the, the case work that we had done up to that point. Uh, I think, gosh, I can't even remember. I think maybe we'd done like 20 or 25 cases at that point. Um, now where I've lost count, uh, I mean, we've tripled that number probably since then. Um, there, there've been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of animals who have been, whose well-being has been assessed through the five domains model and, and that that information presented in, in various court cases over since 2014 now and and we've also that that in that first paper it focused on the work that we started doing with dogs dogs were the that was the species that I was asked to provide an opinion on initially but since then um, it's uh, we've applied it in court cases that have involved uh, rodents um, cats pigs rabbits, uh, a bearded dragon, um, uh, horses. Uh, so, you know, the, the, we're, we're, I think it was very helpful that we did start this um, establishing the five domains model in court with dogs initially. Um, but, uh, you know, we've built on it since then. It's, it, we're now we're starting to generalize its use in, in other types of case as well. So uh, yeah, so that that's really the the, the way the paper fits um, in all that, and and certainly you know it it's it is helpful for the courts to 
uh, when I say the courts, what I'm talking about is the trier, someone, the person who is what we call the trier of fact. So the trier of fact is the person who has to decide, ultimately, did something happen here um, that was that, uh, that that is some breach of the legislation, breach of the law, um, and if so, how bad was it? And when we're in the courtroom, you know, both sides, the defense and the prosecution may both produce experts to, um, to help the trier of fact understand the facts um, and to make a just decision. And, uh, and so, and that's what my role is in the court. It's not to advocate for any party. It's not to side or be biased or impartial. It's just to help the judge understand the facts. Um, and that's, that's exactly what the five domains model allows them to do. It, um, it's, a, it's an amazing communication tool, ultimately. It, um, it, it, the way that it's laid out is it's science-based, but intuitively it's also very easy to understand. Um, it's very systematic and it also fits well with how, um, with, with how uh, lawyers present evidence in cases, pre pre uh, present circumstantial evidence specifically. Um, you know, we, we list very, very precisely um, without having to provide any kind of opinion at all initially, you know, what condition is the animal experiencing? What is the physiological the um, and the behavioral reaction of this animal to this condition? Um, uh, what, what, what kind of affective state can we infer that the animal is experiencing based on these, on these two factors? Um, and that's, uh, and the, the framework allows us to do that. It allows us to look at the conditions that the animal is experiencing in a very comprehensive way. Um, I think, you know, that within the model, there are something like at least 32 different four ways in which animals can suffer. Uh, but, and so it, it, it's comprehensive. Um, uh, and I think that's why it's just also such a helpful tool. We don't miss anything. <laughs> yes. So uh, can you briefly talk to, for people who are listening and don't actually know what the five domain model is, can you briefly um, talk about the model and uh, about, you know, the subjective experiences uh, of, of animals? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the five domains model is a, it's a framework for uh, that allows us to assess animal welfare in a very comprehensive way. Um, there are five, um, five domains listed in, in the model. Um, they are, oh gosh, <laughs> I know this in my sleep, but I know I'm going to stall now that I have to suddenly sort of recite them. Uh, uh, we look at nutritional factors, environmental factors, um, health factors and behavioral interactions. So those are four domains or four areas in which um, compromises or um, advantages to the animal may produce either a positive or negative affect. So for example, if we think about the first domain, nutrition, um, within that we have access to water, for example. Now an animal that is um, given inadequate access to water the, the model allows us to understand that the, the, the negative affect that the, uh, the individual may experience if it doesn't have access to, to water as it needs it would be thirst. Um, and it's important that you know, the, the first thing that this model would do is allow a court to understand that, oh, right, thirst is actually a way in which an animal might suffer. Now, to animal welfare scientists, that sounds very obvious, but to, to laymen, you know, suffering is something that people can rarely define. 
and they cannot break it down and understand the various ways and the various terms that we use in order to describe the nature of suffering. And that's what the model does. It helps us to understand what is the what are the conditions that may lead to either positive or negative affect and what is the positive positive or negative affect that the individual may experience as a result of that condition. Um, same with food. Let's imagine um, also under the, the first domain, the nutritional domain, if an animal has inadequate food, then the negative affect or the form of suffering they would experience would be hunger. Um, and of course, I, I'm really focusing on um, when I'm trying to illustrate how an animal has suffered some in, in my world, I'm focusing on negative effects, but equally, um, you know, if an animal has sufficient food, then they would feel satiated um, and uh, 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 which would be a, a more pleasant experience. So this is um, this is how the model is laid out. It, it lists these conditions and it lists these these positive or negative affects. Um, the, the the fifth domain is specifically the the effects the effects that arise as a result of the conditions that are listed in domains one to four, um, and it's very detailed and it, it it's it's very much a um, David Meller who. Um, is the, the the father of the five domains model you know he's always purported that you know this this is a it, it's always going to be expanded it can always be expanded it can be adapted depending on who needs to use it and um, uh, and in light of new and current research that allows us to expand the model so I, it's gone through many iterations since it was first um, first drawn up I think in the 1990s or was when David first um, started to publish it um, it just keeps getting better and better and in fact there was a newer updated version published by um, David and Nio as well last year that expanded the um, the fourth domain, that of behavioral interactions um, between animals and people and their caregivers as, um, as ways in which um, things that may actually cause an animal to, um, to suffer as well, things that hadn't been sort of quite so explicitly detailed in, in previous versions of the model. Um, so it's, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very helpful tool. And of course, anything that makes it into the model has, it's already been rigorously researched and validated. And, and so it's, uh, that's why it's also very helpful to the courts. It's, it's, we know that if it's made, if something's made it into the model, it's science-based. It's not just based on, um, you know, visceral reactions to how we think animals are feeling or anthropomorphism. These are, these are, this is based on sound scientific data. Wonderful. So, you know, talking about anthropomorphic, um, you know, I guess you talked a little bit about, you know, how you need steel nerves and to be very well prepared and, you know, to have confidence in, in everything that you bring, your opinion of is, of course, based on science and everything else that you have at your disposal to help as an expert. Uh, how do you deal with, you know, the sentient argument or the negation of, um, you know, experiences in animals? Yeah, well, I, I think um, that's a good question. The, it, it, it doesn't come up as often as I thought it would, but it, it does come up in certain some debates where, you know, there is sometimes the question raised, well, you know, do we even believe animals are sentient? Um, and in Canadian law, unlike legislation in, in some other countries, 
Canadian law doesn't specifically state that animals are sentient. However, um, we, our Canadian law does, excuse me, I'm just closing my door. I've got very clever dogs who know how to open doors and let themselves into my office, but they don't know how to close the door after them. <laughs> okay, um, we're in now. We um, dogs in the podcast, so absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're coming and going. Um, uh, so, 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 but what, um, so when, you know, the, the question of, well, are, are animals even sentient, are dogs even sentient, when that's raised, um, that my response is, well, it may not be um, uh, explicitly written in our legislation that animals are sentient, but it's implied by the fact that we do recognize they suffer. And they can't suffer unless they're sentient. So it's it, it's already there. We the our Canadian laws have already accepted that animals can suffer from um, these various negative affects. So so that's my response. And um, but what I'm also very careful to do with um, in these cases is to is to prepare when I prepare reports for the courts. Um, I, my job, my role is to help the courts understand some very complex scientific principles. That's, I'm, I'm there as an educator and a teacher to the, to the trier of fact to help them understand um, the evidence that's before them. And so um, I, I, when I write a, a report, it's not just my opinion of the evidence, but I give them a background. So there's an extensive preamble in the reports that give them the, help them understand the scientific basis by which we can feel confident when we are talking about sentience and affects in animals. And, and it's a very highly referenced, um, very current um, preamble that's based on, on gosh, there's, there's probably about 60 re uh, refereed uh, peer reviewed papers in that preamble to date. It's also constantly evolving and being updated. Um, but that is, that, that's basically how we, uh, how, um, we help the, the courts to have confidence in this, um, this idea that animals are sentient. And we, we don't have to rely on anthropomorphism or, uh, and in fact, I specifically don't, I specifically do not say in court, well, how would you feel? Or if this was us, how would we feel in that situation? I, I know some experts do use that argument, but I specifically don't because we don't have to regardless of how I feel, what's important is how does this animal feel? And there is, a, there is substantial and sufficient evidence on the species that I have talked about in court to, 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 uh, to validate how they feel based on research on, on them, not on, we don't have to generalize based on humans in order to be confident that we understand how those animals feel as well. And so, um, and as soon as we do start to uh, use arguments like, well, you know, imagine if you, if someone took your child away when you were, when the baby was three days old, for example, you know, if that's all we've got to make our argument, well, then you know, the, the opposing counsel are going to find ways to pick holes in that because, well, we're different species. Who's to say we are the same? So, yeah, so I do, I very much try to avoid bringing anthropomorphism into the courtroom for that reason. It's, it's a, you're going to get picked apart by your opposing counsel if you start doing that. <laughs> yeah, and you don't want that, of course. So, yeah, I think, you know, as we are wrapping up this podcast, 
of course, we all love animal stories and also hearing, you know, positive outcomes of, we already heard a few of the cases where you've been able to make a difference together with the team for the animals involved. Uh, can, could you share uh, one last story with us at the end of this podcast on a positive outcome or success story of care and justice for animals in cruelty cases, please? Um, absolutely. There are so many. Um, I, I think, uh, gosh, what would be a, I, I, I think um, what comes to mind actually is a, is a cat case that um, I had in Nova Scotia, uh, which is a, a, an island back east of Canada. Um, it was a couple of years ago now. And I think the reason this one stands out as, as such a, um, such a win for the for the Nova Scotia SPCA was that had we not applied the five domains model in this particular case I don't believe that this case would have even seen the courts it, it would have it, it was only because of the five domains model that this that justice was was served in this particular case um, and it involved a cat um, called Oscar um, he is. Um, he lived with a couple, uh, a man and a woman, and the 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 man who lived with a cat would film himself um, strangling Oscar um, to the point that he became asphyxiated. But then he would be allowed to recover. Um, and the girlfriend, uh, she was able to somehow she 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 saw these videos um, on 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 her partner's phone. And she called the SPCA and Oscar was seized and examined by a veterinarian and there weren't any marks on him. Um, and, and so the question was, well, you know, physically there's nothing wrong. We've got this video of him being strangled but, and choked, but he's fine. And it was, the SPCA were feeling pretty helpless because they could tell from the video that, that Oscar was certainly suffering during the, um, during these, uh, interactions with the with the male owner and so they called me and they said you know what do you think and I said well they, they, we have a, a lot of research a lot of data that looks specifically at the um, the concept of breathlessness in animals breathlessness being different to asphyxiation breath asphyxiation is that that act of being deprived of oxygen um, but breathlessness is that negative affect you experience as a result of being asphyxiated. And of course, breathlessness is there's more to it than that. But in, in this context, that was that was the crux of it. And I said, well, you know, under the legislation, you cannot cause an animal to suffer unnecessarily, regardless of whether or not he lives or dies or he has bruises. You know, we we can we can prove suffering. So fortunately, we had video of, of Oscar going through this. Um, this act of asphyxiation with the owner, we also could see his physiological and his behavioral responses to that, um, to being choked. Um, and on the basis of that, we were able to prove not, not only that he was suffering from breathlessness, but also the severity of that. Um, you know, so breathlessness is considered to be one of the, the, the worst ways we can all suffer because it's, <laughs> it's meant to create such an urgency for us to correct that, that physiological imbalance. And if we don't do it quickly, we will die. <laughs> if we don't have oxygen soon enough, we will die. And so it does create a very intense uh, negative affective state of breathlessness and also secondary to that panic. 
Um, and the, the courts accepted it. And um, the, uh, the, the accused was found guilty of um, animal cruelty. And, um, and he, I believe he, uh, he has a, a very long prohibition on owning animals. I can't recall if he went to jail or not, but you know, a lot of people are going to jail now for causing animals to suffer in the most abhorrent ways when there is no physical evidence of, of harm. And these are cases that six years ago would never have, they wouldn't have even been considered by the courts. The prospect of a successful prosecution was considered so negligible that no one was touching these cases and people were getting away with causing animals to suffer in that way. And so, you know, I, I think that's the case of Oscar. I think he was one of the first cat breathlessness cases I did. You know, it's monumental. It sends a message out to society that you cannot mess with cats in this way. <laughs> you cannot, it doesn't matter whether or not you leave any physical signs of what you've done. But if there is, uh, if there are other signs that this animal has suffered as a result of what you have done to it, then the courts acknowledge that is not okay. Um, so I, I apologize that, you know, it's not necessarily a, a, a feel good story and that we're not talking about a cat that's experiencing joy. The cat was uh, exposed to a very traumatic event, but the joy is that that case outcome is going to have an impact on many other cats and hopefully make other abusers think twice before they treat cats this way. Um, and, um, and so I think that's the joy. I think the joy is Oscar didn't have to live with that. That abuser any longer and hopefully other cats won't as well. Absolutely yeah so sometimes indeed stories are not necessarily uh, the nicest stories to tell but they're very important stories that should come to light and that we should be talking about and and the difference that you have made for Oscar and and hopefully for many other animals and of course the differences that you have already made for many other animals in these cases. Thank you so much Rebecca for coming onto the podcast talking about, you know, of course, being very well prepared and confident uh, and also the importance highlighting, you know, about writing and speaking and getting messages out there, uh, not just, you know, that it makes sense and that it's useful in court, but also to people who are caring for animals or interacting with animals and the importance of science and legitimizing it through publishing and and, and other means. And, and again, by highlighting over and over again throughout this podcast, the value and the importance of the five domains model. So thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. Thank you so much, Sabrina. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure. I, um, I really uh, appreciate you asking me and you're right. The, the hour flew by for me at least. <laughs> It was so for me too. So I very much look forward to having you again and to continue our conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. So well-being for you and your animals is too important not to get right. And at Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourself. So to be at your best to achieve excellence in animal care and welfare and to, of course, feel good as you are serving and caring for others. The Practical Animal Welfare Platform is the first online platform combining human and animal well-being science and practice where you can get the education and tools you need so you and your animals can flourish. So follow the link in the podcast description to become a member today. 